Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. I want to take a second and thank everyone for listening to the podcast and sharing their words of encouragement and support via social media. Now it is hard to tell from the analytics exactly how many people are following the podcast from episode to episode, but it does seem to be safe to say that in the two months this podcast has been out there, a following of some level has been established. I hope to continue to grow that following, and just this week, the promotional items for CrimeCon started to arrive, and they look amazing. I can't wait to have some face-to-face time with true crime fans and hand out some true blue crime swag to whoever stops by. I did double duty yesterday releasing the Canadian episode and completely redoing my first episode on Jacob Wetterling's case. I wanted people who are listening to the podcast for the first time to have a good representation of what the podcast has grown into, not what it was like when I didn't quite know what I was doing. So if you desire, feel free to go back and listen to the completely redone from scratch episode one, and please keep sharing the word about the podcast on platforms like Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future episode and a thank-you message from the host. Also, for no cost... Please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1887, a real estate developer named H.J. Whitley purchased a 480-acre ranch 10 miles west of the growing city of Los Angeles, California. That same year, Harvey Wilcox purchased 120 of those acres to set up his own town. His wife, Data Wilcox, as legend has it, had heard the name Hollywood and decided the new town, with its holly-like tunyon plant, should be called Hollywood. In 1910, the town voted to merge with the city of Los Angeles in order to access their water and sewer system, and this proved to be a good move for the town, as two years later, the burgeoning motion picture industry was looking for a place to set up their headquarters for what they saw as the future of entertainment. Originally, New York was destined to take on the role, but most of the patents for the motion picture camera and its equipment was held by Thomas Edison's company, and they threatened to sue every time a movie was made. As it would be much harder to stop movie production on the other side of the country, in 1912, the filmmakers decided that the year-round good climate of Southern California, combined with the diverse environments and geography of the region, would make it the perfect place for them to shoot their movies. Settling on Hollywood for their motion picture headquarters, the film industry quickly built studios in the Hollywood area. While many did not survive these early years of film, entertainment monsters such as Warner Brothers, Paramount, and Columbia have thrived over the years. By the 1920s, Hollywood was the fifth largest industry in the nation, and by the 1930s, the film industry was putting out 600 films a year from Hollywood. The area of LA became known as Tinseltown and the Dream Factory. Many young people flocked to the city with hopes of making it big as a movie star or an executive in the industry. 100 years later, this still stands true as aspiring young actors and actresses leave their hometowns across America and the world to try and win the entertainment lottery. For a select few, it works out and their name 
or more often their stage name, becomes a household name. For many, the dreams die out and they return to their hometowns and settle into non-movie careers. But Hollywood doesn't just attract want-to-be stars, it attracts predators that prey on the vulnerable. The most popular victim of these predators is the still unsolved Black Dahlia case. But there have been many others throughout the last 100 years. Young people, mainly women, targeted for the same good looks that they hope to use to land a spot on the silver screen. And sometimes the predators that Hollywood attracts are just plain evil, as we will learn from the case of the Hollywood Ripper. Our story doesn't actually begin in Hollywood, but in 1993 in a suburb outside Chicago, Illinois, called Glenview. Glenview is in Cook County, which is the same county as Chicago, but sits about 15 miles northwest of the Chicago Loop. In 1993, it had a population of roughly 38,000 people, and one of its resident families was the Picaccio family. In August of 1993, Trisha Picaccio was a recent graduate from the local high school where she was said to be friends with everyone. She had a bright future ahead of her as she was just weeks away from starting at Purdue University where she planned on studying engineering and environmental issues. Her older brother Doug was proud of his little sister and had no problem bringing friends by and his friends enjoyed chatting with the outgoing Trisha. On the evening of August 13th, Trisha stayed out late with friends, participating in a late-night scavenger hunt before being dropped off at her home around 1 a.m. The following morning, her father left the house and found her blood-soaked and lifeless body on the house's patio. Trisha had been stabbed several times, and despite her father's attempts to revive her, it was later determined she had been deceased for a few hours. Her murder shocked the mostly crime-free suburb, and while leads initially poured in, the investigation never gained traction, and after all the normal suspects, including the boyfriend and local sex offenders, were cleared, the case went cold. Investigators did have one suspect who knew the family and lived only five houses away, then 17-year-old Michael Garzolo. Michael was one of those friends Doug brought by from time to time, so he knew Trisha. Michael displayed some odd behavior after the murder and was looked at as a suspect for some time. Under the pressure of the investigation and seeking fame and fortune, Michael moved to Hollywood in 1998. He failed to make it big, but found odd jobs around town, including working as a bouncer at the Rainbow Room on the Sunset Strip in the late 1990s. On February 21, 2001, a young woman named Ashley Ellerin was getting ready for a date with the up-and-coming actor Ashton Kutcher. Ashton had been discovered in a bar in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 1998, and by 2001, he had landed a role as the lovable but dumb Kelso in the popular sitcom That 70s Show, and on the movie screen as the dim-witted stoner in the cult comedy Dude, Where's My Car? Although not quite a household name yet, the young actor was doing well, and he was looking forward to his date with Ashley. They had met in late 2000 when Ashton was dating somebody else, so he actually set her up with a friend of his, but that relationship didn't work out. A month or so later, Ashton was single and met Ashley at a party where he learned she was still single, and they made plans to hang out after Ashton watched the Grammys at a friend's house on the evening of February 21st. Ashton was running late that evening, but had been updating Ashley via the home phone about the change in plans. He called her around 7.30pm to tell her he was running later than the 8pm they had originally agreed upon. 
and around 8 he tried calling her again but got the home phone's voicemail, so he left a message with an updated timeline. And at 8.24, Ashley called him back and told him the home phone wasn't working, so she was using her roommate's phone, and it was fine that he was running late because she had just gotten out of the shower and was drying her hair. Running even later than planned, Ashton called around 10 p.m. to tell her that he was on his way. There was no answer to this phone call. He arrived at Ashley's around 10.45 p.m. and knocked on the door. This was over two hours since he had last talked to her and around the time frame that she was finishing up getting ready for the evening. After knocking again and getting no response, Ashton peeked through a window and saw what he thought was spilled red wine on the floor. Later, he stated that Ashley was known to throw big parties, and he assumed there had been some type of a gathering and someone had spilled some red wine before the group went out for the evening and no one had cleaned it up. But the liquid wasn't wine, it was blood. Ashley's blood. The following morning, her roommate came home around 9 a.m. after spending the night at a friend's house the previous evening. She found Ashley's body on the bathroom floor, and she had been attacked after getting out of the shower. Her last contact with Ashton had been about how she was getting ready for the evening, and there was no contact after that. Her arms and hands were littered with defensive wounds, obvious signs she tried to fight off her attacker, who had been armed with a knife. Ashley was stabbed 47 times, with 12 of those stabs deemed to be fatal. News of her fatal attack spread quickly, and Ashton, realizing he had been at the crime scene the night before, or at least at the door of the scene, immediately notified the police of his actions the night before, the conversations between him and Ashley, and what he saw when he arrived at her place. At this time, Ashton was likely on the short list of suspects during the start of the investigation, but he would be near the bottom of the list, and at the top of the list was a man described by one of Ashley's friends as an odd man who had become infatuated with her. This friend and Ashley had been attempting to fix a flat tire on her car in late 2000 when a man approached them and offered to help. The man took an immediate interest in Ashley, flirting with her and asking her for her number. Ashley's good-hearted nature missed the odd vibe the man was giving off to her friend, and she gave the man her number. This man told her that he was a uh, HVAC repairman, so that's heating and air conditioning repairman, and told her to call him if she had any heating or cooling issues. She did call him once to help her fix an issue with her heater, but then Ashley's friends said the man's odd behavior grew more and more dangerous as he was seen on security video showing up at Ashley's house unannounced and walking around her property. In one instance, the man showed up at her house out of breath and talking about how the FBI was at his place and were trying to frame him for someone who he was killed in Chicago. During this conversation, he would pull up his pant leg and reveal a large hunting knife he carried strapped to his leg. Ashley's roommate told the man to leave the residence. And it was just days or weeks after these predatory behaviors began that Ashley was killed. While police conducted interviews, they were told about a story involving this mysterious man being involved in an accident where he was struck by a vehicle while walking. One of the detectives on the case looked up recent accidents and found nothing but did re locate a report in which a man's dog was killed by a moving vehicle. That man was Michael Garzulio. When the detective showed Ashley's friend Michael's photo, they positively ID'd him as the HVAC man who had inserted himself into Ashley's life before her murder. So we'll take a second and kind of go over 
this entire story. I know we kind of blew through uh, Trisha's murder up in Chicago and then ran right through Ashley's murder here. Now, one of the reasons why this made such big news is, A, this the second murder had happened in Hollywood, and B, it's tied to, at that time, I mean, most people, if you watch that 70s show or Dude, Where's My Car?, uh, you know, Ashton Kutcher was on the verge of breaking out in Hollywood at this point. So while he's not super well known, there's a lot of people in America that would recognize him. Uh, he's got a very distinct look, a very distinct character to him. So the fact that he's somehow tied into this kind of propelled this story quite a bit. Now, there are a couple points that really stuck out to me. One is this flat tire. We'll often see, and I know it was brought up in the Zodiac case, uh, where there's a belief that he may have stalked some women and, and in one case loosened some uh, lug nuts on a woman's tire and potentially uh, kidnapped her. And that, that case is hotly debated whether or not it's a Zodiac case. But the point is there are times when these killers are so premeditated that they'll do something like if they want to have a reason to interact with someone they'll damage their vehicle somehow and make it so that they've created the damsel in distress situation and that they can then insert themselves into this life because if they're just walking by it's going to be even more odd for them to just kind of stop somebody and start up a conversation with a complete stranger but if that person's dealing with a flat tire or a vehicle that's broken down it introduces, it creates an opportunity for the killer to interject themselves into this person's life. A reason for conversation, for helping, for possibly exchanging a number. So while there's no proof and the, the source material didn't say anything about this flat tire being potentially a premeditated situation, it is possible. And then we've got multiple times where this guy that michael's on her property unannounced uninvited he's caught walking around the property and then the evening of the murder they they said the phone wasn't working properly and there's nothing again in the source material of the investigation but it makes me believe there's high probability that he messed with the phone lines and maybe he didn't cut them to the point that this would have been an obvious thing that police would have found afterwards but there's other things you can do. You can just unplug a line if you know what you're doing or you know, find some way to, to mess with that phone. And the I don't think the police found forced entry on the home either. Uh, I think when Ashton knocked, uh, I don't know that he even said his fingerprints would be on the hand. Like that's what he told police. So he must have tried the door and maybe it was locked. But there's nothing indicating there was forced entry to the home. But in the case of Michael, this is somebody that she knew, and there's potentially reason for him to be in this home. It was also mentioned this guy was at one of her parties uh, a few weeks prior to the murder, and people said he just kind of sat on a couch, didn't talk to anybody, and just stared at, at Ashley the whole time. So he's got he's been in this home... He's got reason for some some evidence that could eventually be linked back to him for it to be there. But it really feels like this detective that was following up on this creepy guy and his odd behavior goes all through this effort to get Michael identified. And then in the fall of 2002, 
two detectives from Cook County, Illinois, which is Chicago and, and where Trisha Picaccio's case is out of, uh, flew to L.A. to try and locate Michael as they were investigating her murder as part of a, a cold case file. So I'm sure these investigators are going through this murder, uh, Trisha's murder, and they come across this Michael guy who was acting odd. He knew Trisha, lived just a few houses away. He's acting odd after the murders, eventually moves away after the murders. I and mean, these are all the red flags you look for uh, for somebody who's committed a major crime like this. So as a part of their cold case investigation, they want to follow up with Michael and they know he's in the LA area. So they just happen to come across this LA precinct looking for Michael and the detective working on Ashley's case either overheard these guys or he was the guy that was actually assigned to help the out-of-state detectives and he realized that this murder suspect from this 1993 murder that they're looking for is going to be the same guy he's identified just recently from Ashley's case. Now Michael was soon tracked down and before they found him they found a van that belonged to him and they did a search warrant on the van that he was driving and they found a knife binoculars and the van's license plates inside the van that should have been on display and this is what you would call a, a crime ready vehicle especially for somebody who commits knife attacks he's taken the plates off the van and this is something that i would see as a police officer and sometimes it is an honest mistake. Sometimes people would just get the plates mailed to them and then out of either being lazy or forgetful or apathetic, they would forget to put the plates on the car. And so when I stopped a vehicle for having no plates, they'd be like, yeah, the plates are in my back seat. And the plates would usually still be like shrink wrapped in what they were, <laughs> they were sent to them in. And then I just tell them, you know, you need to put your plates on your vehicle. Like there's a reason why they're there are license plates on a vehicle you're not supposed to be driving around with all plates on but criminals take advantage of this and they'll remove their plates because without the plates all you have is a rough make model color of the vehicle no way to identify it back to a suspect so if he's going to be parked outside of a house where he's going to commit a murder he doesn't want some eyewitness saying yeah there's this creepy guy in a van and here's the license plate so of course detectives are going to be very suspicious of what's going on with this van. It's basically set up to either drive to a location and either stalk or and or I guess commit a murder against somebody and then get away without anybody being able to identify the vehicle by the plates. Again, he wasn't around at the time, so they searched his apartment. And it was described as being extremely sparse. There was only a couple items of furniture, like a mattress on the floor and a small kitchen table with a single chair. So I'm, I'm picturing, like I said, an apartment that's, that's basically empty minus whatever the apartment had for pre-existing, um, you know, doors and and closets and that kind of stuff. And I guess he had some clothes in a closet, but that was about it. And a backpack was also inside the apartment, and the backpack had a Halloween mask and a handgun inside it. And Michael ends up showing up to the apartment while they're searching it, and it's said that he tried to make a getaway. And so they had to chase him down, tackle him, and handcuff him, and they transported him to a nearby hospital. Uh, the Cook County, Illinois detectives actually had a, 
a search warrant for his DNA, so they were able to force him to give up samples of his blood and hair. While en route to the hospital, he voluntarily blurted out that his DNA might be at an old crime scene and wondered how it took them 10 years to find his DNA. When the news asked further about this, he decided not to say anything else during his brief time in custody. And after giving up his DNA, he was released. And this is what shocked me, because although now he's got these two cases, the 1993 murder of Trisha and the 2001 murder of Ashley, that seem to be falling firmly in place, and he's not going to be charged with anything from either of these investigations. Now, there was no direct physical evidence that I could find in Ashley's case. And, and the problem, as I said before, is even if you find his fingerprint in that apartment, he's been in there before. He's been invited to parties. He helped her fix his, her heater. And I didn't want to get into it in like slanderous detail, I guess. But Ashley was a, a girl who liked to party. She had a lot of uh, male friends, acquaintances, boyfriends. And so there were a lot of guys in her life at the time that she was murdered. So this was not going to be an easy case because there's there was a long list of suspects that were developed as a result of this. And again, without anything to link a criminal physically to that crime scene to her actual body or the murder weapon or anything along those lines, all they had was the circumstances around here, which don't look good for Michael, but I don't definitely don't think they're enough at this point to get any charges. Now that's different in the Chicago case, because in the Chicago case, there were matches made between the DNA taken from Michael and DNA that was found under Trisha's fingernails. And from the sounds of it, when Trisha was initially given an autopsy back in 1993, part of any autopsy is usually doing fingernail clippings. So the pathologist or medical examiner will clip the person's fingernails and also sometimes scrape any material or debris underneath those fingernails. And in a situation, especially a, a close-up encounter like a knife attack, there's a good chance that the suspect's DNA, if that person claws into that person as a, as a defensive mechanism or just happens to grab the person, that there's a chance that person's DNA is under their fingernails. Now, Cook County, Pro or Cook County investigators are going to find Michael's DNA under Trish's fingernails on the night that she's killed, but the Cook County prosecutors are going to decline to charge Michael with the murder because they claimed the DNA evidence alone wasn't enough to convict him. And this was based on the fact that Trisha had apparently accepted a ride from Michael the day before she was murdered. And prosecutors worried the defense would argue his DNA got under her fingertips during the ride. And this is something you run into that the general public probably doesn't know uh, exists at the level that it does. Prosecutors are elected officials uh, the, the county attorneys in, in all cases are elected officials. And when they want to be elected, they want to have a sales pitch when it comes to election time about their conviction rates. So if they fail to obtain a conviction in a trial, it hurts them in more ways than one. First off, it hurts the case because you can't then retry unless it's a mistrial. If they're just fully acquitted, you can't retry that person no matter what evidence comes up down the road. 
So some prosecutors will just be careful, hoping that the case will present more evidence somewhere down the road and, and where they're comfortable pursuing charges. Other times, if they think there's any chance they can lose a case, even a very, very remote chance, they won't try these cases because they don't want the the failed conviction on their record. And this is really a problem in a lot of cases because our justice system revolves around a beyond a reasonable doubt in a trial situation. There's always going to be able to be some doubt, but it's up to the investigators and mainly the prosecutors to erase that doubt when you get to trial. And I don't know that a car ride in somebody else's vehicle the day before a murder. Now, had everybody known that Michael had given her a ride home that evening and then her DNA is found under or his DNA is found under her fingernails during the autopsy, sure, I guess I could see where that would be questionable, but this ride was over 24 hours before she was murdered and she did a whole bunch of activities that next day and humans do activities with your hands and you're going to wash your hands after going to the bathroom you're going to wash your hands before eating you are going to engage your hands in other uh, other things you had been on this well one site said a scavenger hunt another site said she went to some type of a car rally or car thing or something like that but the likelihood that it's only going to be his dna under her finger nails after 24 hours of her living her life yes it could be an argument but i don't think it's one that you have to fear losing a case on and this really upset trisha's family at the time and and when this was going to come out later on uh, a lot of people were very upset about it and, and again it's it's prosecutors that don't want to risk losing they'll just decline cases even if the case is 98 percent a lock to win they fear the two percent which is their job is to erase that two percent and they just go yeah i don't want to feel like this like i could lose this case so i'm just not going to charge it because they get to decide not to charge something there's no risk involved but if they decide to charge it that's where the risk is so a lot of them will err on the side of caution because their political career relies on it and and again it's a it's a miscarriage of justice in my opinion especially i don't know how many cases i worked where i would build a case what i consider to be on a silver platter hand it over to the prosecutors and they'd say eh, i don't know they, they could argue this or they could argue that i'm like they could but it's your job to explain to the jury why that's not a logical argument like it, it we have evidence direct evidence putting this person here and and if we lose because of a bad jury we lose but i'd rather try them and lose because in a lot of the cases i wasn't going to get any more evidence down the road so but sometime after this incident michael moved to the el monte area which is a working class neighborhood of la and although parts of el monte are dangerous with gang violence and heavy drug issues michael moved into an apartment complex in a quieter area of el monte and it was the quiet and relatively low cost of living by L.A. standards that attracted divorced 32-year-old Maria Bruno to the complex. Now, she was described as being extremely attractive, and she caught the eye of one of her neighbors, a good-looking HVAC repairman. And the man started exhibiting strange behaviors, and he was often caught watching her, and once he followed her into her apartment, but exited after a few seconds. 
When asked about this, she told her friends, oh, he's okay. But on the morning of December 1st, 2005, Maria's badly mutilated body was discovered in her apartment by her ex-husband. The two had remained friends after their divorce, and he was there that morning to give her a ride to work. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, and friends of Maria told the police about this strange guy living in the complex. The crime scene was checked in a single blue medical booty, like the type worn by surgeons and home repair specialists, was found outside Maria's door. And when I say it's surgeons and home repair specialists, this is, you know, the, the guy that's coming in, he's fixed your air conditioner, and now he has to go down and check the furnace, but since he's been out wherever your air conditioner is, dirt or, or mud or whatever it might be, they put these little protective booties over their boots so they're not tracking mud or dirt or anything into your home. So it's it's a dual purpose little booty thing. And we would actually use these on crime scenes as well because we don't want to track anything in or we don't want to get blood or contaminants on our boots when we're working these crime scenes. So we would often use these, especially on bloody crime scenes, we would use these these booties. And the booty had three drops of Maria's blood on it and DNA was discovered on the elastic strap of the booty, but it wasn't of good enough quality for comparison. And her case, like the others, started strong but fizzled out rather quickly. Then in 2008, Michelle Murphy was a young woman who called Santa Monica home. The beautiful 28-year-old was in the movie industry, but not in front of the camera, she worked behind it. She specialized in post-production work and had an apartment about 10 blocks from the beach. She was living the best life and maintained her athletic looks by going for daily jogs. It was on these jogs that she would often pass a van parked near her apartment. The side of the van said Gus the Plumber, and there was usually a tall, dark-haired man behind the wheel. She would often wave and say hello as she ran past the parked van. In the middle of the night on April 28, 2008, Michelle woke from a deep sleep to a man on top of her stabbing her in the chest. She fought off her attacker, taking more stabs to her arms and shoulder as she tried to roll out from underneath the knife-wielding man. Unable to free herself, she grabbed onto the knife with her bare hands, the blade slicing her flesh to the bone. The extremely bloody scene meant things were getting slippery, and at one point the attacker slit his own wrist with the knife and started adding his own blood to the mix. This caused a momentary pause in his attack, and Michelle used this opportunity to get free and land a powerful pushed from her legs that launched the assailant off her bed and into the wall. He stood up and said, sorry, before sprinting out of the apartment. Police responded to her 911 call, and they found the attacker had entered through a bedroom window but left out the front door, leaving behind a trail of his own blood. Michelle recovered from her wounds, and her overall strength and resolve had saved her life. Investigators collected the blood from the trail left by the suspect, and within weeks they had a match to the DNA sample put into CODIS by Cook County for Trisha's case. Michelle's attacker had been Michael Garzullo, and this time he wasn't going to escape charges. Investigators found that Michael had moved in across the alley from Michelle in 2007 after he married a woman who had lived in the apartment for some time. He quickly became infatuated with Michelle's good looks, and he could see into her kitchen and dining room from his new accommodations. He started working for Gus the Plumber, and often sat in his work van, hoping to see Michelle working out in her carport or leaving for a jog. Investigators immediately built a case against Michael, 
some of the other murders he might be involved in. Initially, the 2007 murder of model Juliana Redding in Santa Monica was considered a possibility, but that case, which we will cover sometime down the road, was ultimately not related to Michael. But investigators quickly went back to Ashley and Maria's murders and started building homicide cases against Michael. As we mentioned before, Ashley's case was going to be more circumstantial and was seven years old at this point, but Maria had only been killed three years prior. And while Michael no longer lived at the El Monte apartment complex, investigators did a search warrant of his old apartment. The main living area had been cleaned out, but in the attic, investigators found a matching blue booty to the one located outside Maria's apartment. The elastic band on this booty had enough DNA for comparison and the DNA matched to Michael. He was arrested for the attack on Michelle on June 6, 2008, and while in custody, he tried to escape by snapping the head off a plastic spoon and fashioning a makeshift handcuff key from the remaining stem. This was videotaped and he got an additional charge of attempted escape from custody. Luckily, Michael was held without bail while investigators continued to build the case against him. On October 20th, 2008, Michael was charged with the attempted murder of Michelle and the murders of Ashley and Maria. And the trials would go through numerous delays due to Michael firing a series of defense lawyers and spending some time trying to represent himself. His double murder trial finally got underway after 11 years of delays. And some people might ask why these cases are allowed to be delayed so long well in this case he's actually in custody so the whole right to a speedy trial thing that's up to the defendant themselves and they can turn to the prosecution if the prosecution is dragging their feet and playing games and they can request a speedy trial and that changes the landscape of the overall situation but most defense attorneys don't want a speedy trial the prosecution usually has a head start in the case because before they can even charge somebody they obviously have to have the evidence lined up a case built against the person everything like that so the defense attorneys are usually the ones that are going to slow things down so that they can gather the stuff they need the expert witnesses the the reports and everything to try to build a defense case. So it's not uncommon for cases to take a year or two or sometimes three to go to trial because of delays by the defense. But I mean, 11 years is really long, but every time you fire a defense lawyer and a new one comes in, they've got to start from scratch. So he's playing these games, but meanwhile, I'm sure the prosecution is more than satisfied with the fact that Michael's behind bars this entire time. It's not like he's out free and this 11 years he's living his life and doing whatever he wants to do. He is sitting in custody this entire time. So there really isn't a huge push because ultimately that's where they want him to be and where they want him to stay. So he's going to sit in prison for these 11 years while he plays all these games with the legal system. But eventually opening arguments are going to begin on May 2nd, 2019 for this trial. And now many different witnesses testified against Michael regarding his actions surrounding the two women that were found dead. Even Ashton Kutcher testified about his arrival at the crime scene on the evening Ashley was killed and how the phone seemed to be having issues and he never heard from Ashley after 824 that evening. 
and the trial was a media sensation partially because of the involvement of the now very well-known Ashton, but also because the crimes occurred in the spotlight capital of the world, Hollywood. The media dubbed Michael the Hollywood Ripper as his crimes were similar to those of Jack the Ripper in the late 1800s England. By not taking a plea deal, Michael was subject to the death penalty, and after being found guilty of the premeditated murders of Ashley and Maria, he was also found to have the aggravating factors of multiple murders and laying in wait to commit the murders. So in many cases where the death penalty is an option, not every murder or homicide fits with the death penalty and jurors have to weigh, you can find somebody guilty of a capital murder, but you can decide that there aren't additional factors that warrant the death penalty in the case. But in this case, he's not only gonna be found guilty of the murders, they're gonna say it wasn't just one murder, it was two. And in fact, the judge actually allowed parts of the investigation of the 1993 killing of Trisha into the case. So in the jury's mind, he's committed at least three murders at this point. And he did so in such a way of stalking. And as I mentioned before, likely laying out these different traps where he would gain the trust of these women and then do certain things to make sure that he wasn't caught in these crimes. And so they're gonna look at it overall and just say, no, you didn't just come across somebody and, and quickly kill them and be done with it. Uh, there was things that he did to the bodies of these women. There's, there's the fact that it was multiple murders and the fact that he did it with kind of a stalking behavior that the jury decided his crimes were at the level that he needed to face the death penalty. And while this was supported by Ashley's family, the LA district attorney announced he is against the death penalty, and currently the state of California is under moratorium for the death penalty under the decree of their Governor Newsom. This caused Ashley's father to issue a public statement condemning these politically driven stances and stating the voters of California support a death penalty, and there's no better case to show why the death penalty is needed than Michael's. And while Michael sits on death row in California, he is also facing a potential future trial in Illinois. After learning of his involvement in the murders in California, two co-workers of Michael's came forward to Cook County investigators and said that while working with Michael in the late 1990s in LA, he admitted to both of them that he killed Trisha Picaccio. Their statements have been deemed reliable and will likely tip the scale of evidence in favor of prosecution. But as of July of 2023, no trial date has been set for charges against Michael for Trisha's murder. And part of this, I mean, I definitely understand and I approve putting him on trial for Trisha's murder. I can see now why the, the Cook County investigators really aren't in any hurry to do so. I think he will go on trial for it, and again, I, I fully agree with this, but it's almost a moot point to a certain degree because his two options in California are the death penalty and life without parole. Uh, if he hadn't gotten the death penalty, he would have been life without parole, and because of the moratorium on the death penalty, he's technically right now life without parole. So the charges out of Illinois likely aren't going to change his incarceration status at all and so i can see why you know, trials are expensive and 
Illinois might just be kind of delaying the inevitable here, but it, it was said that these co-workers, when he admitted this stuff to him, or I guess bragged about the stuff back to him in the 1990s, they said that was his personality. He bragged about doing a lot of things that were later proven that he didn't actually do. So when he told these guys about killing Trisha, they just chalked it up to him just telling stories again. And when they saw that he was convicted of these murders and it was they were knife attacks, just like he had described to them with Trisha, they realized, no, he was probably telling the truth about that one. And that's what had them come forward after all these years. It wasn't like they believed him and, and kept the secret for him back in the 1990s. It's just that they didn't believe him. And then all these years later, they see his name and face on the news and they realize he probably did do that. So now with the DNA under her fingernails and him confessing to the murder to a couple people, like I said, it, it's likely that they're going to at some point hold the trial for him and and he may plead guilty to the charges just to avoid it but based on his personality my guess is he's going to want to turn it into another media circus so likely at some point there will be a trial for trisha's case but as of this date nothing is set and now this case is another example who's of someone literally getting away with murder for way too long and i say that because trisha was murdered with no known motive she wasn't sexually assaulted she wasn't robbed so investigators had to kind of go fall back to the whole she was killed just because somebody enjoyed killing and so that's other than some morbid gratification a killing uh, if that's the case the killer needs to be stopped immediately and instead michael was in and out of their investigation for many years and at least two women di died after you know, trisha's case and, and one of those murders occurred after the DNA matched him to the victim of their murder. So their decision to decline charges back in 2003 could be looked at as a, you know, a failure to put him away or at least identify him as a killer before he came in contact with Maria and was able to kill her and before he viciously attacked Michelle. Michael has been said to have bragged to investigators about killing upwards of 10 women. And it really is hard to believe that a man motivated by these morbid acts, such as stabbing women to death, and was known to always carry a knife on him. And I use the term only here. here. I'm not trying to downplay it, but there was four attacks on women in 15 years, according to the story. And I honestly believe there are more victims in the L.A. area that lack the physical or eyewitness evidence to associate the crimes with Michael. And I say that because there's at least two murders where he's either the neighbor or an associate of the victim and everybody in that victim's life said, hey, check out this creepy guy. They identify him, at least in the case of Ashley, they for sure identify him. And you know, they're not able to build a case against him. How many cases out there are there where a woman is stabbed to death and nobody linked it to Michael via eyewitness or anything like that? And there is, you know, even with physical evidence, it was hard to charge him in a couple places. So it's, it's one of those things where it's very possible that 
between 1993 and 2001 when he killed Ashley, there may have been more victims, and it's very likely in that 2001, 2005, 2008, he attacks three women, killing two of them. It's very likely there was periods in between there where he where he also attacked other women but that is it for the case of the hollywood ripper thank you guys for listening stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com you can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on facebook and support me via patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. so that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye